welcome in to the show. It is Daniel Ortman coming to you from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. early riser wake-up call out on the West Coast and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday, October the 17th. Still reeling from Tuesday, not because it was a surprise. I wasn't surprised. I actually told some people earlier uh, before the game that uh, I felt like uh, Canada had a legitimate shot at winning. I didn't see anything from uh, this uh this team and from this coaching staff that led me to believe that we were going to be able to walk into Toronto uh, with confidence and the ability to win. Um, Not to say that we couldn't have won or stolen the points, but I just didn't don't, don't feel like all the matches leading up to Toronto had really set us up for, um, the kind of mentality as well as um, having the player selection available just didn't, I didn't feel confident and that proved itself uh, out on the field uh, as the, the Canadians win for the first time in what? 34 years two nil and what is worse about this whole thing is some of the comments afterwards where Greg Berhalter rips his player saying they, I didn't see the desire. I'm a big fan of leadership. I'm a big believer in leadership. I think everything rises and falls on leadership. Leaders don't throw players under the bus. Leaders look into the camera. They look into the into the the, the eyes of the reporters. They, they address the fans and they take ownership. They say, look, we didn't have enough good ideas. That's on me. I didn't get our team ready to play. That's on me. Leaders stand up. Leaders are accountable. Andy Stanley once said that leadership is a stewardship. It is temporary And you're accountable. Well, I'm looking for all of those things right now. For Greg Berhalter in the position of head coach of the U.S. Men's National Team, your stewardship of this program has not led us forward. By no objective measure can you point to any area of the program and highlight progress. As to the temporary nature of leadership, the hot seat should be really hot. The track record of the Federation, though, is to say, give him time, give him more time, especially being that, uh, as we discussed on the show, he was the primary candidate interviewed. Everything else was a dog and pony show. And he's their darling candidate. One of the reasons, one of the allegations, one of the accusations as to why that is, 
is because his brother is the COO and from all accounts, the de facto CEO. People are leaving U.S. Soccer House, working at U.S. Soccer House, not because they've fallen out of love with the game, but because they are tired of the toxic culture. We've seen it. We've talked about it with the Glassdoor reviews. Jay Burhalter should be on as big of a hot seat as Greg Burhalter. We have a culture problem within U.S. soccer at the highest levels. I think everything should be on the table, including president, vice president, board of directors, officers, national team coaches. We are not doing things well. If we were, we wouldn't be hit on all sides with a multitude of lawsuits, allegations of toxic culture within the work environment. Handpicked candidates, nepotism, leadership is a stewardship. I'm not seeing good stewardship from the highest levels of leadership within U.S. soccer. Leadership is temporary, means at some point someone else needs to step in. And for me, It's becoming more and more clear that unless those in charge take action, that they too are part of the problem and they all need to go. And the third part of leadership is that you're accountable. And U.S. soccer and its governance and its rules, its bylaws, its policies does everything in its power to prevent accountability from happening. They make it very difficult for accountability to happen. But accountability is exactly what we need in this moment. We need accountability. We need people to look in the mirror and say, that's on me. One of the things that... uh, that Greg Berhalter talked about in regards to his players had to do with this lack of passion. This has been a recurring theme for a while. And uh, after the break, I'm going to get into a little bit of why I think that is. And uh, I think there's a few reasons. And um, some of them may may not be so obvious. Some of them may be. But... um, Again, even if that's the case, if you're the head coach, that is on you. Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. You can check them out there and uh, pick up a journal, pick up a coaching notebook, pick up a t-shirt. And use the promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order at Ducktick Brand.com. We'll be right back after this.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday, October the 17th. Coming up a little later in the show, we are going to be joined by Ian Thomas. He is the uh, editor for Sports Business Journal. Getting back to where we were, talking about leadership and uh, what Greg Berhalter, the, the coach of the head coach of the U.S. Men's National Team, talked about after the game is he basically kind of threw his players under the bus, putting the blame on them like we just didn't play with passion. That's on him. That is, uh, yes, the players should be accountable as well, but uh, ultimately he's the leader. He's got to get them ready. He has to pick the right players. He has to prepare them in the right way. None of those things are happening. And for anyone who's, who's going on air talking about he's got to adjust his tactics to his team, he's got to, this goes beyond tactics. This isn't about a formation. If you think this is just simply changing a formation and that all of a sudden we've unlocked uh, the American spirit, please. You can you can you can repaint the walls of your of your room on a cruise ship, but if that cruise ship is still heading towards an iceberg or heading to the bottom of the ocean, it doesn't matter how pretty you make it, you're still going down. And so you could change the formation just like you can paint that room on a cruise ship. But until you change the culture, the leadership doesn't matter the formation. So how do we change that? How do we how do we get to a place where the US men's national team isn't terrible? And there's no mistaking here. They're terrible. San Jose Earthquakes coach and former Argentina international Matias Almeida warned that players from the U.S. need to play like every match matters and put more passion into their game. Almeida, who moved from Liga Emeke Club Chivas to coach the Earthquakes this season, said that the U.S. players lack, quote, passion and love, end quote, for football. Right now, winning, losing, drawing, it is all the same for them. So when that switch gets flipped, they are going to change because the league, he's referring to MLS, is growing. The United States then is going to have a great national team because they have the talent in each of their lines, many of them enough to play in Europe. Yes. The U.S. has a great team with a lot of young players with fabulous talent. But I think in this league, and especially with the players who were born here, there is spark that we have to plant within them, and that is the passion and the love for football. It's a culture problem. Winning, losing, drawing, all the same to them. Why? Because systems and structures matter. How you do what you do matters. You can try all you want to simulate competition, to simulate pressure, to simulate the environments that create world-class talent and world-class excellence. But there is no substitute for the systems and structures that create world-class talent and world-class excellence. And a part of that system and structure is a culture. Tom Beyer talks about establishing a culture at the youngest ages. And I am in complete agreement with his philosophy. There are too many kids showing up to soccer parks all over America who, if this were in an education context, would have no understanding of letters and numbers 
language when they showed up for school. And yet, we think that we're going to drop a kid off at practice once or twice a week, and somehow they're going to become proficient in speaking the language of soccer with their feet. It's not going to happen. The culture starts at home. A mistake I see over and over from soccer clubs across this country is a failure to educate parents of children six and under. That parent education may not seem like it's going to pay off in the beginning. You may not be able to charge a family a hundred bucks or thousands of dollars for their education. So you may not think it's worth your time if you're a pay-to-play club because you're like, we've got bills to pay. We've got other things to do, other things to worry about. We need somebody else to take care of that for us. No, it's your job. That's your community. Those are your families. Educate them. We've talked on this show about building a deep relationship with your families. This is one way you do that. And there's a payoff down the road. If you educate your parents, there's going to be a few things that happens. Number one, you're going to, you're going to see less distractions on the sidelines because they're going to know what they don't know now. Secondly, you're going to have families that are more in tune with your mission and vision because you've taken the time to tell them, to teach them, to show them, to build a relationship with them. Third, if you help educate the parents and their kids and more of your kids in your club and in your program can get proficient at handling a soccer ball with their feet, at being able to control and manipulate a ball properly, those players are going to enjoy playing at a higher level for a longer amount of time. And over time, your bottom line will grow. Instead of worrying about how do we fix This is a common question that U.S. soccer has been asking of themselves. I've sat in meeting after meeting at at U.S. soccer AGMs. I've listened to coaches talk about these things at, at coaches' conferences. And time and time again, you'll hear the same question. How do we address the fact that we're losing so many kids at 13 and above? This is how. You make them proficient at the ages of two to six with their feet. Now, not every kid's going to be amazing. Not every kid is going to be magical. But what you want to be able to do is get them to a place where they can read and write with their feet. If you're thinking of this in an education contest context, if they could add numbers, if they can multiply, if they can do basic math skills and they can read books in school, that's what we need them to be able to do in soccer. But too often, you'll see a kid at 11, 12, 13 years old, and they cannot control a ball. It's kick and chase. Everything is a struggle. Their first touch is terrible. I see kids that have incredible skill whose first touch looks like the broadside of a barn. And thus, they have to work harder and put out way more effort than they should be just to, just to have an impact on the game because they can't settle a pass coming from a player 10 yards away. That's proficiency. Educate the parents. Personally, this is a shameless plug, and Tom didn't pay me to say this. He's been on the show. He's a friend of the show. But I think every club in America should go to every family in their club, ages two to six, and buy them the book and put it in their hands. 
You want parent education? He's got a manual for you. It'll be the best investment you've ever made in your club. Hands down. Help your parents help your your players. The other part of culture is our system and structure. Major League Soccer is not set up in a way that forces players to play under pressure. Too many teams make the playoffs. There's no promotion and relegation. In other words, there's no consequence for actions. Without consequence, there can be no real pressure. And without real pressure, we cannot create diamonds. Period. Plain and simple. The Federation and Major League Soccer for far too long have been colluding together to prop up a system that tries to simulate global football without fully embracing the system structures and cultures that made global football what it is. And without complying, without honoring solidarity payments, training compensation, promotion relegation, and creating real pressure in this country for players, consequence for owners, we are never going to get to a place where our training environments produce players that have the passion and the hunger that Almeida is describing. It's not an accident. We're not going to magically wake up one day and all of a sudden it just starts working. The definition of insanity, we all know it, is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Major League Soccer has been trying to do soccer the American way for decades, expecting a different result, and it's not happening. It's not working. And then when you take a coach with a winning percentage under 40%, from MLS, picking a lot of MLS players. It's just highlighting the fact that our system and structure and culture is not good enough. So there are things clubs can do. There are things the Federation could do. There are things Major League Soccer can do and should do. And until we do those things, we are going to be mired in mediocrity. And if we're mediocre in CONCACAF, that means we're terrible on the global stage and we are in trouble. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. If you have not uh, ever checked out Charity Water, check them out at charitywater.org. They... uh, They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world. And you can be a part of that story by helping uh, provide clean drinking water to more and more people. Go to charitywater.org for more information. We'll be right back after this with Ian Thomas. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world we know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth and when you can bring water into communities it truly transforms them it changes everything now you could know that you'd made a difference you could know that you had truly impacted the lives of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink and we will continue fighting until that happens.
Thursday, October the 17th. We are pleased to be joined by Ian Thomas. He is the editor for uh, Front Office Sports. And Ian is uh, kind enough to join us on this Thursday. How are you, Ian? I'm doing well, Dan. How are you? Doing well. Thanks uh, Thanks for joining the show. Uh, glad uh, we could get you on. Um, so uh, give us a little bit of, of background on you. How did you get involved uh, with, with journalism, sports, etc.? Uh, wh- wh- where did that uh, fascination or desire, passion, whatever, start for you that you said, hey, I want to make a career out of this? Sure. So, yeah. So I had uh, originally gone to school to sort of be a finance reporter, uh, spent some time here in New York covering commercial real estate, uh, private equity, M&A, a few other things like that. Uh, and long story short, kind of wanted to mirror or match my interest in sort of sports and, and kind of my career kind of in business uh, writing more broadly. And an opportunity came up to, to work at the Sports Business Journal, which is sort of the, the thousand pound gorilla in, in the sports, journalist, sports business journalism space. Uh, had, had spent about five years there covering uh, hockey and soccer most broadly, uh, more specifically, I should say, with some other stuff. And then uh, this, you know, came over here at Front Office Sports, which is a uh, digital sports business startup where we've just gotten rolling about a little over a year ago in earnest, uh, building out our team, kind of taking a, a different look at the industry, trying to get a little bit more behind the scenes and, and cover some stories that maybe hadn't been traditionally covered as well by the sports business space, whether that's folks in the, in the industry or when other publications were to get into it. And uh, yeah, it's been about six months and I've been enjoying the car. So um, one of the, the big stories that uh, I think is going to have a major effect on American sports uh, over the next few years and in, in decades to come is this California law that has sure. been uh, passed recently regarding uh college athletes uh having the opportunity to get paid um and and i wanted to get your thoughts on the law and 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 more importantly on a broader sense what do you think happens as a as a result from a a cascading um you know aspect does does the law um do you see do do you think we see more states adopt a similar law like where where do you see this thing going yeah i mean uh you know, as, as I think everyone probably knows this discussion on kind of whether to, to pay or not pay college athletes, student athletes has sort of been festering for quite a bit here. And, and frankly, I don't know. Uh, I, I think you can make a good argument for both sides or, or a lot of people sort of are. You know, I think as regards to this, uh, the, the California legislation, you know, I, I think it's not to uh, dodge the question, but I think it's, it's, it's a little hard to sort of say today only because you know, obviously with this going to take an effect in 2023, it's hard to say if this exact form of it will, you know, there's going to be such a fight put up by not only the NCAA and and I think, you know, other parts of of the sports industry, but by the colleges themselves that might fear that they, this might exclude them from participating in the college football playoff. Uh, You know, the, the PAC 12, obviously kind of, loosely said it wasn't exactly in favor of this. Uh, I believe the, the exact wording they used was many unintended consequences. You know, I, I, I think obviously this, this move by Gary Newsom in California more broadly, obviously is going to force the hand a little bit of the NCAA to act. I think, you know, more and more folks have been coming out in favor of the NCAA doing something to uh, compensate athlete, student athletes in a certain way. Obviously the workload put on them uh, between classes and, and academics is, is tough. You know, uh, the fact that other uh, students can monetize themselves outside of school or things that they're studying obviously is a, a bit of a catch 22 when it comes to athletes and what they can offer them. So, you know, I, I think this obviously the NCAA is going to have to act in, in some regard. What that exactly does, I mean, they're going to be spending millions of dollars over the next few years lobbying to alter this bill in certain ways to, to try to get other uh, politicians in other states to not go the same route. Um, you know, will we see kind of a windfall of, of states pushing the same direction? 
it's hard to say right now, but I think uh, there's going to be something that comes out of this. It's just, it's, you know, as with all things, once you get kind of into that political realm, it, it's really hard to predict as a lot of the, the back and forth will be going on behind the scenes of, of what anybody kind of sees for better or worse. If uh, the California law is, is upheld and we start to see other states uh, go down a similar path, um, what, what, you know, if we kind of look in our crystal ball, let's go down that hypothetical path for a moment. If that happens and we start to see other states like, say, Texas, Alabama, um, you know, Ohio, Michigan, some of these states that have, mm-hmm. you know, perennial blue blood, you know, traditional football powers, for example, in their states, um, where do you think, you know, how does the landscape then change uh, for, the sports landscape. If a, if a college athlete is now, uh, as you were just describing, able to you know make money uh, off mm-hmm. of, of of who they are, even while at school, um, what kind of effect do you think that has on? Uh, l- let's for a second look at the professional landscape, whether that's the NFL, Major League Baseball, um, the NBA, Ma- Major League Soccer. Um, how do you how do you think that impact uh, affects any of their businesses, if at all? And if not, where where might the impact be felt? Is it at the minor league level or the lower division level when we're looking at uh, American soccer? Um, sure. you know, what, what do you see in that uh, standpoint? If if that happens hypothetically, if that law is upheld and other states mm-hmm. follow suit, what do you think we could look at in terms of potential impacts? Well, I think, you know, probably the most impact will be felt in the sports that, you know, th- there's more of a traditional pipeline from top end colleges and universities to the sports themselves. So that whether that's football or basketball, you know, it's obviously NCAA baseball and, and NCAA soccer are both, you know, uh, breeding grounds for players, but I would say those sports, you know, to your point between the minor system in baseball, but also, you know, whether that's, you know, via USL or MLS academies or, or frankly going abroad or just other sort of higher in schools. I I can't imagine those sports will see a tremendous impact in terms of their, uh, I guess the talent pipeline, if you will, I think, you know, basketball and football is, is probably where this will hit, the hardest uh, assuming things sort of hypothetically go the direction that they go. And I think the real sort of thing to look at is, you know, if let's say this were to pass in, in California and, you know, uh, a USC, a Cal, a Stanford, they're the NCAA effectively declares them ineligible to compete because they have student athletes that can now make money compared to other schools. Does that mean that uh, you would never see a UCLA in a college football playoff? Does that mean you would never see Stanford in uh, men's or women's the March Madness? Uh, you know, by proxy, does that mean those schools recruit more poorly and the talent you know shifts elsewhere or goes to smaller schools? Does that mean that that frankly those you know assets in terms of the competition level? in those conferences diminish, you know, do, do you, if you, you're an, if you're an NFL coach or a scout for an NFL team and, and the talent level drops off in the PAC 12, because you know, maybe there's one or two really strong schools and some others, do you look at a quarterback at Stanford or, or USC differently than you might have if they were a stronger division or, you know, they faced Alabama in a bowl game and played really well. All of a sudden if that team is, you know, playing effectively lesser opponents, one, does that mean they recruit more poorly or two, does that mean you sort of say, well, they, you know, it'd be like uh, looking at a quarterback from a, from a NCAA subdivision and and maybe that discounts them as well. Uh, You know, I think that that's going to be, I think the determiner of of what happens here. I mean, will the NCAA find some middle ground where, you know, presumed if this, if this goes past that these schools still participate in, um, you know, big competitions in the conferences themselves, you know, in bowl games, things like that, or do they strip those away as sort of a, I guess, a pseudo punishment for being located this way or, or, or following those, those guidelines. I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine that, you know, if this were to pass in, in Michigan or in, in Florida or California or even Texas, to your point that all of a sudden all those schools would just not be eligible for bowl games. Uh, 
I, you know, I, it's hard to imagine we get to that point, but uh, you know, I guess in, in theory, that's the the big stick that the NCA will sort of carry when it goes to local politicians and say, hey, you know, do you want to see Michigan State ever compete for, or Michigan or Ohio State ever compete for in a bowl game ever again? If they, you know, if you pass this, they they're done. There goes you know the tens of millions of dollars that your uh, local institution makes to put back into not only sports, obviously, but other parts of the university. So, you know, I think in terms of that talent pipeline, that part of the decision uh, or or how this will actually be enforced uh, in relative to those schools will will probably determine, you know, how the other parts of the sport will be impacted, if you will. When, uh, when we look at, um, the the landscape of American sports and uh, looking at the business of American sports, um, you know the, the NFL for for quite some time has been you know kind of king of the pile. Um, they've been at the top. Uh, they're you know somewhere in the ballpark, uh, roughly of around fifteen billion. You know, give or take a few billion. You know, I'm sure you and I can uh, can can do a give or take a billion here or there in our checking account. Um, but uh, uh, right, um, but uh, you know, give or take a billion here or there. They're around 15 billion. Uh, Major League Baseball, I think, is uh, just under 10 billion. Uh, NBA, close to around five billion, and then Major League Soccer is less than a billion uh, in in some numbers that I'd seen, uh, I have seen. Um, when we look at, at kind of the, the top leagues uh, for those sports, American football, baseball, basketball, as well as soccer, uh, what are some things that you see where, where American soccer, and in particular Major League Soccer, needs to do to start to close that gap uh, with baseball, basketball, and American football? Well, I think, you know, media rights is always going to be the kind of the thing that wags the tail of the league revenue dog, if you will. And I think, you know, until we get to the point where MLS can really command those kind of deals, uh, I, you know, that's, it's always going to pale in comparison. And, you know, I think it's in, in a way it's a bit of an, I think an unfair comparison between NFL and MLS, let's say, for example, I mean, yes, they're both pro sports leagues in, in United States, North America, and, and, you know, presumably are the top of, uh, you know, trying to do things in, in the most professional of manner in terms of growing their business and so on and so forth. But, you know, the NFL is a, is a monolith. I mean, uh, I don't have the data in front of me, but of the last 120 top rated 125 or most viewed 125 television programs of the last, I believe, calendar year or 2019 thus far, the NFL makes up uh, upwards of 90%, if not close to a hundred, you know, there, there is, there was not a, you know, outside of a world cup final or um, when the U S men's national team or women's national team advances to a certain point in that, in a world cup, no real soccer competition can match that reach, at least here in the United States, obviously, globally that's that's a different story but at the end of the day the you know the international to media markets are not paying top dollar for mls matches as they are say for the nba in in some areas of the world you know i think you know from an mls point of view i I think it's you know it's about driving that media value for that next deal it's about proving that you know your your league is extremely relevant in certain markets that that your the property that you're putting on, or excuse me, the, the product that you're putting on the field is is improving, and obviously offers something to a viewer of not only a soccer fan but just a broader sports fan. So, if an MLS match is on ESPN, that's going to cause folks to turn in. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I think as we both know, MLS faces challenges from every other league on the planet that also wants a piece of the United States and the United States soccer fan, which, you know, presents a totally different challenge to that specific league as it relates to say the NHL and the KHL. I mean, the KHL is obviously on maybe on the radar of the most extremely hardcore hockey fan, but even so I don't, I don't, it's not even remotely close. I mean, 
MLS, uh, you know, it still struggles in terms of being the most relevant league here in the United States. I mean, frankly, if you just go strictly by television ratings, it's not even the most relevant league to the American consumer that's based in North America. I mean, League MX takes that crown by quite a bit. And frankly, is, uh, you know, their television ratings do far better than the EPL. Granted, uh, the fact that League MX matches are on prime time on a Saturday versus 8 a.m. on a Saturday or Sunday morning does it does uh, sway that a little bit. But nevertheless, that league is extremely popular as well. So you know, I think for MLS, it's it's just keeping to up its level of, of, of what it's doing. Uh, it's about finding those cities that I think, you know, uniquely connect to the marketplace where you're going to drive really strong local ratings. And and that's what's going to be able to, they're going to be able to come to the table to their broadcast partners or, or potential broadcast partners in 2022 and say, here's, you know, the unique proposition we bring in terms of our sport, in terms of what we're doing. Uh, it's, this is how it's different than say what you're airing MLB matches or, or games, excuse me, NBA or NFL. This is, you know, the demographics of where America is going. This is where we see MLS fitting in there. And then, you know, hoping that the networks that they're chatting with sort of view things the same. I mean, I don't expect that gap to close, you know, in this next deal. I think, you know, the NFL is still going to be garnering billion dollar contracts. It's television ratings are up quite a bit um, compared to last year and are almost back to where they were, if not higher in, in 2017, before there was a little bit of a, I guess, concern where the NFL was going uh, in terms of a product. But, you know, I think MLS has had steady growth. Um, I think for, for the league, I obviously can't speak for everyone there, but I think the progress has been, has been good. And, and that's ultimately what's going to drive this up. So every, every time they do a new deal, if it's 20, 30% higher, that's, that's kind of what they're going to hope for. So a uh, question in regards to like, for example, sure. the next TV deal, um, if you if you track the the viewer numbers and you mentioned for example uh you know league mx uh is the most watched league here in the u.s uh the premier league uh, follows up in second uh some of these mls matches that are on uh, espn as well as fox uh, less than a hundred thousand viewers uh the, the the ratings have have been declining over the last few years on their their matches from a, a national broadcast level um what kind of effect do you think that's going to have on this next potential deal and um and you know knowing that right now they're splitting somewhere around 90 million per year uh on their current tv deal with the federation um with the landscape of where American sports are, where their viewership numbers are. Um, do you expect a deal in the same ballpark? Maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower, knowing, knowing kind of where the market is. What, what do you see as a potential coming up for this next deal? Um, especially if the Federation is going to be bundled together with uh, major league soccer in terms of, you know, seeing where the interest is um, and, 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 and where the television numbers are um, in comparison to, to their other counterparts, you know, whether that's basketball, baseball, or American football. Yeah, well, well I would say specifically on the ratings for the league. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, more broadly, they've been, they've been increasing. I mean, there obviously have been some ebb and flow in that each year. Um, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, this past season, there's, FS1, which I think a lot of the league's lower ratings have have come on, or or uh, to your point, less than a hundred thousand viewers at times. I mean that I think that that network itself is has just been struggling with sports properties more broadly. I think you know it's been losing a lot, whether that's Bundesliga or other rights, other other sort of leagues or properties that I think they're sort of repositioning their uh, re- reconfiguring their strategy as it relates to live sports. And even just, I think, you know, they need to sort of, they're looking a little bit at kind of the relevancy of their network as it relates to say ESPN2 or something like that, where MLS ratings have been markedly higher. Uh, You know, to get to your point on kind of what this next deal looks like in a lot of ways, I mean, there's still no real indication if the U.S. uh, Federation rights, uh, men's and women's and friendlies will be bundled into this deal 
but I can't imagine it wouldn't given that it probably makes more both properties rights more valuable to a certain degree. But I, I think the landscape for media rights uh, for sports media rights, excuse me, has is ex- markedly different than the last time major league soccer sort of was in the marketplace with these rights, or I should say soccer United marketing since they're going to be the kind of uh, the sellers of these rights. I mean, you know, just think of some of the players that have entered the space in the last, not even two or three years, whether that's zone uh, Amazon to a certain degree. There's always the the thought that somehow Facebook is going to enter the right space. I mean, Twitch has become somewhat of a, a player for, for, for live sports rights. Um, ESPN through ESPN plus has obviously been bundling up not only a ton of soccer rights, uh, but, but just sports rights in general. You, know, you still have other sports companies in the space. You know, you have a Turner that obviously made a big play with the champions league. You know, you still have Fox and ESPN linear more broadly. And, and who knows, maybe NBC sort of finds its way in the mix of it sees synergy with some of the other properties. I think and then you have the digital players that, that, you know, obviously flow sports is, is uh, has troubles with DC United, but there, there might be some opportunities there to break up the rights a certain way. I think, you know, MLS is positioning itself in a way where not only is all of its domestic U uh, S and North American rights going to be up in 2022, but so will every local team right as well as well as all international rights. So what does that value proposition look like to say an ESPN where they have, you know, obviously rights, uh, excuse me, broadcast platforms and, you know, literally every continent uh, sans Antarctica, probably to a certain degree on the planet. Can they pick up a global, a global package of MLS rights and, you know, not only, you know, have games, you know, your local matches be streamed on ESPN plus, but they're broadcasting games on, you know, ESPN, you know, this year's MLS cup final is going to be on ABC, which is obviously in the ESPN family of networks, I guess more broadly, if you will, uh, the Disney family, does that mean more games show up on the ABC platform, you know, or even how are these rights sliced and diced up to a, a larger degree? I mean, does, does a DAZN step in and own the MLS platform in, in, in Canada. I mean, a lot of these players, uh, some of these upstart media companies or even some other ones are, you know, they're really hungry for rights and, and, you know, really trying to drive subscribers, whether that's to to their OTT digital platform and drive subscriptions that way, or, uh, you know, just trying to compete in this uh, very fractured landscape. I think, you know, I, I don't think it's a question that MLS is going to get more money on its next deal. Will it be a 50 to 100 percent bump? I, I don't know. I mean, the last deal, if my memory is correct, went up about 30 percent year over year. Um, and I think they'll, they're hopefully probably going to aim for that same ballpark if they can get it. I think the, the real question for MLS is going to be how much of what they do is going to be put behind a paywall on, say, an ESPN Plus, as this is a league that still, you know, in a lot of ways needs to draw more fans in. You know, doing that sort of makes a lot of sense for, say, a USL, which, you know, up until this year never had a rights fee, um, you know, obviously needs to work its relevance, but also needs to generate some money so it can pump some money back into its operations and building its league out and helping expand, you know, USL championship and League One and, and so on and so forth. You know, for MLS that, you know, needs to take advantage of this wave of interest in the sport of soccer to continue to be relevant in the different markets that it's in is it the right move to put its matches solely behind the paywall i mean uh, dc united is a great test case for sort of what happened here you know they open Audi field they get rooney the popularity of the team is probably not uh, going into the last season has never been as high as it you know in, in a number of years since the team was extremely relevant um you know back in the late 90s early 2000s and they go, they put their local matches behind a paywall and, and kind of cut off maybe in some ways that funnel of new incoming fans who might be interested, but obviously then also make a few million dollars that they've never made before. You know, ultimately flow sports kind of struggled with that and technical issues also in terms of reaching those fans and delivering on that promise of this is why you should pay X dollars a month. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of balancing act of, you know, do we need to make sure we have as many games as we can on linear television so the larger audience can maybe catch on? Or do we try to make some more money so that we can reinvest in what we're doing and, and raise our product? I think 
Yeah, that's I think the the, the multi million dollar question that the folks are going to the league office are kind of asking themselves. When we when we look at the changing landscape of media and you brought up a lot of these different streaming platforms you know uh, as more uh, as the technology becomes more accessible and i i i i lived this uh about 19 years ago i used to work at a recording studio and uh you know when i first went to work there if you wanted to do any kind of demo or album you had to come to us like you couldn't get the tools in your house without you know spending tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to do to, you know to get the right quality top quality equipment and uh, over the course of my time there even in that that kind of two-year period we started to see technology put in the hands of producers um you know the the tools to be able to do a lot of this production work before they ever came to see us and uh and so our our studio went from um you know where we would book you know a month of session time with a producer and an artist to a week and and, and over the course of about 18 months i mean it was that it was that quick when uh when pro tools kind of hit the market with a kind of a prosumer level entry point it allowed these guys to say hey i could spend about two grand and uh and have some stuff at my house and, and then i don't have to spend those extra three weeks in the studio tracking uh, tracks, I can just bring in the tracks and then bring in my artist, do the vocals and, and a mix down in a week and be done. And, um, and so I saw the impact of, of, of the shift, the technology shift on that market in particular. And um, I'm looking at where we are in, in terms of media access and content access it's it's now all over the place. We have tons of options. Um, you know, five dollars here, free here, included in my cable subscription here. But they're all over the place. And as you mentioned, they're all clamoring for a piece of the pie and, and a way to kind of get subscribers or viewers, what have you. Um, how do, how do you see this landscape continuing to shake out? We're gonna we are we going to see um you know anybody kind of create a position of dominance do you think that's what espn is trying to do now or do you think this continues because the technology is so accessible anybody could go start a a subscription platform uh you know comparatively for pretty cheap nowadays because of the access to technology um how do you see the media side of all of the uh sports business and and covering sports uh shift and continue to change over the next five to ten years sure well uh, you know i think ultimately to your point on kind of what espn is doing with espn plus at the end of the day you know these subscription services or OTT platforms are only going to survive if they have value to a consumer. At some point in time, the venture capital funding will run out or the, uh, if there's a, a big time backer that will drop off. Uh, you know, if, if people are just frankly not subscribing or the business model doesn't find its way out. Um, you know, I think with something like ESPN plus where they're going to have the rights for these number of leagues, you know, it's, it's going to force either, you know, the consumer's hands to determine, you know, what actually do I find valuable? What am I looking for in a product? But also, you know, we'll sort of make other ones look at themselves and say, are we, are we really giving someone something different? I think, you know, the, the, the thing I think is going to be, it's hard to predict is how fractured these streaming services become. You know, does it, does it own, if you're a fight, a fight fan, if you like MMA, you like boxing, um, does the zone fill all of those needs for you? And you're kind of, you don't care what else is on that platform. If you're a soccer fan and ESPN plus has Bundesliga, Syria, USL, um, you know, FA championship level in, in England, if it, you know, presumably if they renew the, the MLS rights, if the, you know, if they pick up another package or two, maybe it's like J league or, or some other soccer leagues more broadly, 
do you sort of say that's that's all I need? Um, you know, if you're an EPL fan and that's all the soccer you care about, do you have NBC Gold and then the rest of things are relevant? You know, ditto if you're a hockey fan and um, you know between I guess NHL TV and NBC Gold is, is that all you sort of want? You know, I think it's going to be it, it's going to be hard for some of these streaming providers, I think, to be everything to everyone just because at the end of the day there's only one there's only a handful of soccer rights that are valuable you know i don't see the nfl command such a big rights package or rights fee from linear television companies and and generally has resisted the move to go more digital outside of just sort of like you know uh, thursday night football games are on amazon and twitch in in addition to nfl network and maybe also simulcasted locally on a different marketplace or through a bigger, a bigger provider, you know, until those, I think those real Titans of the, of the sports race go completely digital, which I don't really see happening. I think there's going to be, people are going to have to ask themselves, you know, one, how many of these subscriptions do I actually need and and what sports or what kind of leagues do I really care about? And I think that's going to ultimately get rid of some of these players uh, in the space in the long term, just because, it's going to be hard to make that case that you're going to attract, you know, certain level of sports fan or certain soccer fans or what have you, just based off the fact that, you know, um, did, are they going to spend $6 a month to just get your one, one team that you have or something like that. You know, I think um, it's scary to say that I think eventually we're going to get to like a bundle or a bundler of some of these services, which inherently we're kind of already there with a YouTube TV or, or PlayStation view and that sort of thing where it's, you know, they're effectively acting as a pseudo cable package, but not really, I guess, in a sense. And, you know, do we go there? You know, I think, and then I think that to your point, to your analogy with kind of the recording industry, I think the real question that, you know, I have with a lot of these uh, streaming services and their viability long-term is, you know, do some sport team leagues look at themselves and say, Hey, you know, we could be making X million dollars more if we ship to this, you know, OTT platform, but frankly, do we think the production capabilities of uh, an NBC or ESPN or what they're going to offer us from a storytelling point of view or the the quality level of analysis or commentators that they're going to have broadcast in our games, does that, you know, is that more, (laughs) I mean, what's, can you put a price tag on that? I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, you know, is it, how valuable is it for MLS to have a, a Taylor Twelman uh, commenting on his games versus if they were go to a, a different provider and, you know, you have someone that's of lesser knowledge or, you know, frankly, some of the young unsung heroes of, of sports television are the folks in the production truck and people who know when to change to certain shots or, you know, just to how a game is rolled out. I mean, I think, you know, there's, uh, I'm sure anyone that enjoys watching sports on television has a particular broadcaster that they think, does an extremely great job with live sports and just capturing the cinematic nature of, of the sport itself or how it unfolds. You know, if you go to some of these other smaller OTT platforms, are you going to get that same level of quality? And I think ultimately that will sort of maybe keep some of the big leagues on more traditional platforms or at least the platforms owned by folks that may be a little bit more, uh, familiar with or comfortable with and maybe that kind of cannibalizes the industry as well just because you know like i said if you only have x amount of dollars to spend and you want to watch live sports you're going to have to determine you're going to make a determination if you know which of these 10 15 20 platforms makes the most sense for you and the ones that just aren't getting subscribers will ultimately kind of just go the way of the dinosaur in terms of the the kind of new wave of technology uh, that that is making it more accessible, more and more people are watching, you know, matches, clips, etc., on their phones than than they are on TVs. And I think that trend's going to continue as digital and technology continues just to be more and more portable, more and more integrated into our lives. Uh, with all of that being taken into account. Um, looking at the the streaming kind of digital new wave of platforms is kind of like, you know, web 2.0, right? Um, sure. at, at those kind of platforms, 
what are business models that can be sustainable? Obviously, you have the subscription model. Are are there any other models that you that you look at and say, hey, there's some other things that could happen uh, that goes maybe beyond a subscription model? Because one of the things I've heard is just an aside is people kind of you know going, well, I really did this to to not pay X amount of dollars in a cable bill, but now I'm paying five dollars right. here, ten dollars here, five dollars here. I'm back at my cable bill. Um, so are there some things that some of these kind of new generation of platforms can do where maybe it's not a subscription model? Uh, it's some other model. Are you seeing any of that trend happening in that space right now? Yeah. I mean, there there are a handful of, of kind of companies that are trying to, I guess, what you would call that kind of free freemium model. Uh, you know, one of the ones that kind of comes to mind is Pluto TV, which is owned by Viacom. It's a, you know, they, they run kind of ads alongside, uh, you know, the content or, you know, capture a lot of, uh, I guess what otherwise you would content you would see on demand versus say, uh, you know, would be kind of in your kale package if you went to like your on demand or, or stuff that would just be stagnant in Netflix. I mean, I think the, the challenge on that is, is sort of, you know, are they, do they see themselves as enough of a, a live rights driver as to pay the fees that other, you know, places that are going to live in deep die based on which rights they have to, to sort of make that guess, you know, fill that gap, you know, does Netflix ever look to acquire the live rights of, uh, of the NFL? Would, you know, is Netflix or, you know, or any sports for that matter, you know, I don't know. I mean, for, for some of these other players, I think that, you know, are, are moving away from, from subscription fees or trying to find other ways to monetize. I think, you know, other sports folks in sports kind of look them, look to them as places to put content, you know, Pluto TV, for example, you know, MLS has a channel on Pluto TV, which basically plays clips from old games or top 10 goals or some of the content that the league is producing on its website. And I think, you know, as it relates to your to your your point on kind of like where those shake out. I mean, I think, I think that's the the leagues will sort of start to look a little bit more at ways that they can just bolster all of that other content they're doing. And I think in a lot of ways, for especially a younger sports fan, some of that content increases their fandom more than sitting down and watching a live game. I mean, I think the challenge for a lot of these leagues is to get you know that eight to ten year old right now that for them their fandom of say Steph Curry comes from them going on Instagram and seeing him doing something cool, following his life on Facebook, Twitter, social media, or, you know, finding gifts of him doing cool stuff or just watching highlight packages. I mean, I don't, you know, I I think it's a big question if the younger generation of today is going to sit through a, three plus hour game of any sport, let alone the NFL or anything like that, where, you know, what's ultimately that the, the live game strategy going forward, or can you, can you supplement that through these kind of clips, bites, monetizing these, you know, more personality driven kind of free social platforms. And does that still make someone a fan of those sports? I think that, you know, it's kind of an existential question that I think all leagues are kind of facing themselves is, you know, you know, baseball probably chief among all is, you know, do people have the appetite to just sit through a game, not even just in person live in the, in the stadium, but and sit there and watch it on TV. And if they're not going to do that, how do you create content around those things that are happening in those two, three hours and monetize that in some way? Can, you know, just Twitter pay for a highlights package or things like that. Um, I think that's, <laughs> so there's a lot going on in this next cycle of media rights in terms of uh, shifting consumer desires and what they actually want. And I think that's, that's a big part of it too. Well, Ian, I, I appreciate you uh, joining the show. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation, just looking at some different uh, options of where we are uh, in the digital media platform and also American sports at large. Uh, how can people connect with you, connect with your work, and uh, and learn more about uh, what you guys do there um, at, and in, in your covering of sports here in the U.S. And, and, quite frankly, around the world? 
Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter at by Ian Thomas, uh, front office sports. Uh, check us out. We have a, a daily newsletter that's that's free. <laughs> no subscription model there for us. So if folks want to consume some sports business content. We, uh, we have stories on our website and our morning newsletter that hopefully will fill you up with any any sort of interesting sports business storylines. And I think as our conversations sort of intertwine, I mean, when you think about the growth of all these leagues, yeah, um, you know, what, what Carlos Vela does on the field is exciting and means a lot for MLS. But, you know, in a lot of ways, some of the business storylines that are happening off of it are just as important to their growth as some of the players that are on it. And Frankly, to some of the players, as you think about, you know, the next MLS CBA, the, those business factors are, are going to be really important in shaping those leagues. So uh, I'd encourage everyone that's interested in sports to check out front office sports and, uh, you know, further inform themselves on kind of the things that are happening in sports beyond the box score. Fantastic. Well, Ian, I appreciate uh, you joining the show and uh, spending some time with us. We look forward to having you back on again soon uh, and, and get into some more topics uh, and uh, subjects as well. So thanks thanks for joining us. Uh, appreciate you uh, coming on the show today. Anytime, Dan. Keep up the good work. Talk to you soon. Thank you. That is Ian Thomas. I really appreciate him coming on. He is the editor of Front Office Sports. Uh, appreciate his time uh, sharing uh, his ideas about what he's seeing in the landscape of soccer, sports, business, etc. Um, as always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielworkman.com. You can also catch me on Twitter or Instagram at danielworkman.com. Hope you have a great day. We'll see you again tomorrow.